0: Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. I'm ESG Clarity Global Deputy Editor Natasha Turner and today, first off, I'll be joined by Matt Crossman, Stewardship Director at Rathbones and ESG Clarity Committee Member. We're going to talk about modern slavery. So Matt leads Votes Against Slavery, which is an investor campaign encouraging companies to disclose and report in compliance with the Modern Slavery Act in the UK. And in this episode, we chat about going further than just reporting what regulators need to be doing, because as I find out in this episode, the uh, Modern Slavery Act is rarely enforced, and what companies are getting wrong in this area. And there's some very easy wins uh, Matt talks about, and certainly for investors wanting to join the group or get involved, it seems like there's uh, really good places to start. After that, We bring you the second installment of our conversation with Dr. Emma Boland, who's a climate scientist and oceanographer, where she's going to explain climate modeling. And it's very interesting to be able to talk to someone like Emma and to find out just what's going on on the ground. And we hope you enjoyed the last installment where she talked about her trip to Antarctica and her work with the British Antarctic Survey. So please enjoy this episode and let us know what you think. Please get in touch. Leave us a review if you can as well. As we're getting back out and about again and the world starts to open up, we've been meeting quite a few of you again. It's great to be doing in-person meetings. If you're going to be in London on the 14th of June, we're holding our Global ESG Summit in person for the first time now, and we'll be holding our inaugural ESG Awards following that summit. So do come along if you're around. It's at the Ham Yard Hotel, and all the information for that is on the website. But let's get to the episode and hope you enjoy Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt.
1: Hi, great to be with you
0: today. So we're talking about modern slavery today. How have recent events heightened these issues? I mean, there's been a lot in the news recently, and I'm sure it's it's really at the forefront of people's minds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously with the, uh, you know, sort of shocking and seismic events with the invasion of Ukraine in and the half of this year, you know, it really does focus the minds on on some of the the issues which then work them work themselves out as the kind of you know initial phase of the crisis works through and you know one of the things that, that is sadly true about the world is that wherever we have a, a major uh, movement of people or disruption of, of people's lives and a you know a mass migration or a refugee crisis sadly we know from history that in that situation the criminal element completely thrive you know the lack of law enforcement the lack of visibility the lack of well the collapse in the rule of law really that you really get into this situation where this criminal element thrive and where vulnerable people can be you know a higher risk of exploitation so specifically to the movement we're seeing around um, you know people fleeing from the conflict in ukraine we're seeing that already affect um, you know flexible labor within uh, the agricultural supply chain but in lots of other kind of you know easy to access for immigrant labor and we're actually already seeing, you know, some issues with people who've been placed through otherwise well-intentioned kind of hosting regimes. So it tends to really focus the issues. We have a general level, you know, a vulnerability around supply chains in kind of modern economic life. And any disruption like Ukraine tends to kind of bring it to the surface. And it wouldn't take a long to really think about the similar situation we had around the start of the COVID pandemic um, around um, factories in Leicester, for example. So, yeah, very sadly, we we see this, you know, happen time and time again. Whenever there's a supply chain disruption, there's this increased risk of modern slavery and labour exploitation.
0: But I mean, why is it so predictable? I mean, it's so frustrating that you're right. And you mentioned, you know, it's kind of whenever you get an event like this you can predict what's, that these issues are going to come up, right? I mean, that's that's just so frustrating to hear time and time again, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I wish I could wave a sort of magic <laughs> wand and make it happen, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is when it comes to modern slavery, you're operating in this dark economy, you're operating in an area where if people have no respect for the rule of law, then they can always kind of move faster uh, than the kind of, you know, more established democratic pathways can Um, I think the best you can do is to make sure that you're rapidly reacting to it and trying to predict these crises when they come in. And certainly we've seen, you know, good examples from from certain areas of society uh, that have been there trying to sort of um, make sure that, you know, they've done all their due diligence well ahead of time to make sure this kind of mass movement and the increased risk of modern slavery and labour exploitation doesn't cascade down. But yeah, it's, it's one of these tragic things, isn't it? We always seem to be one step behind the criminal element when it comes to these things.
0: Yeah. OK, well, let, let's talk about some of the uh, things that can be done then um, and some of the work that's being done. So you're um, you're taking quite a leading role in the Votes Against Slavery campaign. So can you tell us a bit about that and what's involved with that?
1: Yeah, sure. would love to. So, I mean, we, we've talked a bit about Ukraine, but the, 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 the risk of slavery is something that you know, has been front and center of our minds as a sort of our priority social campaign for for getting on for a decade now. And but even then, you know, the, the issue has been existent for for much longer than that. Um, our project is is quite sort of narrowly laser focused on a particular issue. This whole issue of human rights due diligence and supply chain risk is sometimes can be a little bit kind of. Um, diffuse and and quite difficult to grapple with. So we thought, actually, if we focus very, very narrowly and intentionally on a specific issue, we could have a big impact. So Votes Against Slavery is about using investors' power at AGMs to highlight modern slavery as kind of the defining social issue of our time. Um, What it does is it uses, uh, in the UK, we have this disclosure regime, the Modern Slavery Act Act. Basically, what we do is we do a lot of work every year to highlight where FTSE 350 companies have um, fallen short of best practice. There, we highlight those uh, reports that you know don't meet the reporting requirements of the Act. Then we work with our coalition, which is now well over 120 investors with over 9 trillion assets under management, to highlight those AGMs and suggest that um, those people vote against uh, the report and accounts. So, it's as it says on the tin really, it's votes against slavery, it's using our ultimate power. Of sanction at the AGM to raise these really important issues.
0: And mm-hmm. um, you know that's we're, we're basically in AGM season now. So have, can you say what things you have coming up or what you've already done?
1: Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's what's really interesting about this project is we when we find examples of poor practice and when we highlight them to the company, they're usually very very quick <laughs> to make changes. So it's actually very effective engagement, but it tends to be quite behind the behind the scenes so we've got you know well over sort of 10, 15 companies that we'd found that weren't in compliance already now in compliance and actually the stats from last year that I can provide for you show that you know we i think we had a highlight list of about sort of sixty five to seventy companies nearly all of them by the end of the process were in compliance and actually that's our driver we want to see positive change we don't necessarily want to kind of you know vote against them unless we have to. Um, can't really say too much about specific companies in the run-up now because we're in kind of negotiation with them. But we are aware of a couple of votes coming up where we will be, you know, announcing publicly where we're voting against them on the the um, the company's report and accounts. I think for us though, it's, it's more about engendering that sense of partnership with the companies. So what we've done this year is a lot more kind of helpful meetings with investor relations, sustainability teams within these companies to help them understand, you know, why investors really care about this stuff. It's not just kind of a nice kind of virtue signaling thing. It's about us being able to do our job as responsible investors. If we don't have the information, we can't make best decisions possible. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's one of the things we we sort of see with this engagement is just how effective it is in really bringing companies to the table to discuss the issues.
0: Yeah, Uh, I mean that that seems great that they can change so quickly on this issue. Are there particular things that they're falling down on that are um, common and easy to change yeah I think
1: it's helpful to sort of draw a distinction between you know the reporting which is quite easy to get right and then the big issue which is how they then implement all that reporting and what they're doing so I don't think we're pretending that by getting companies to issue a completely compliant statement that we've solved modern slavery you know far from it we we use that as a leverage as a jump-off point to have a, a more detailed engagement with them but it is amazing how you know some simple things get missed, so the modern slavery statement not being on the right bit of the website, modern slavery statement not covering everything it should the modern slavery statement not being signed off by a senior manager or a senior director I think the um the legislation says, and just focusing on that one that that's quite often one that that comes up you know we are signaling back to the companies that we want. You know, this most senior levels of management to take this issue seriously. So, if if I could highlight that one area, that's that's very often where things kind of fall down. And the other sort of aspect of this project, we I'd highlight. Um, we've been doing it for a number of years, and, and actually, what we find is a company can be have a brilliant statement sort of two three years ago that talks about all the wonderful things they're doing across its policies on, you know, its training, its awareness building, all this kind of stuff. But then it kind of falls off a cliff in a, in, in, a, in a previous year. It's almost like the company saw it as like a bit of a, a tick box or a thing to do once. Whereas actually what investors need is, you know, evidence of a rigorous system of risk assessment. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see, you know, the, the the just to remind these companies that this should be an annual process, an annual appraisal, an annual assessment of the risk and what they're doing to combat modern slavery and how they're putting that into practice. So, yeah, that's the things. I mean, you know, companies can always get get statements re signed and ticked off. But what we're looking for is that consistent, robust engagement with this as a business critical issue.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you're sort of describing that there, it almost seems to me there are some parallels with the like gender pay gap reporting, right? Because, you know, when we talk to consultants about this, they say it's not, things like not being signed off by senior. Members of the team, and you know, failing to report year on year, those are the things that, that get missed, and that just show really easily that it's kind of not being taken seriously.
1: It's a really important point, and I, I, the the other side of this, of course, is that you know, this this in a way, this project shouldn't exist. Mm. The, the 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 reporting regime has its own compliance um, function and structure, and you know, the government can issue sanctions. Against companies that fail to report, but you know the the history of the this legislation is that the government has never actually used the powers in the act to bring a company to, to, to account really so it 's a shame in a way that this this project existed we 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 only plan to do it one year. <laughs> We thought, we thought oh, there's just a, a gap in compliance. Companies don't quite understand the legislation. We might have to do something to nudge them along, and the government will bring up its enforcement regime. But sadly, we've seen this kind of system where, you know, we have to constantly remind companies that this is a critical issue. And actually, you know, for want of... There's been a lot of other things happening in the world in the past sort of four or five years <laughs> that have taken government attention away from Modern Slavery Act... And there's recommendations out there that are as yet unimplemented to to, to improve it. And it's my hope, I think, that, um, you know, the investor voice on this project can be heard by regulators to say that actually use of the enforcement powers in Modern Slavery Act 2015 um, would be something that's welcomed by business, that, that creates that level playing field, that there's no free riders in this whole issue. And actually in that structure, in that system, you know, the best producing companies, the best performing companies, sorry, on this whole area can get the recognition they deserve as well so i think it's you know it's not just about it's about the carrot and the stick isn't it it's making sure that the really innovative companies the ones really committed to responsible business you know get the recognition they deserve as well
0: Mm -hmm. are you able to share any examples or is there a kind of um turnaround story of a company as well that you could share
1: yeah, I mean, without mentioning specifically, but I mean, we, a number of times we 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 have follow up meeting with the company, and it you know over the course of an hour we see this just unfolding awareness of just how important this issue is and what we're actually looking for. So, just to give you a little a little example, we 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 often talk to companies about their um, whistleblowing hotlines and you know i I, I wish i had a penny for every time i've had this uh, heard a company secretary say well you know we have our whistleblowing hotline and and it's going brilliantly we had no calls last year about modern slavery (laughs) and it's really interesting then to sort of walk them through the stats you know average estimated 40.3 million people in the world in some form of forced labor or exploitation of modern slavery work that back through existing supply chains work that back through the uk numbers and suggested them that that's probably a, a failure of reporting rather than a good thing. And, you know, to then explain to them that we want them to go and report this to tell us how they've found these issues, fixed them, prevented them in future. Uh, and having that quality of conversation with the companies to the extent that the next year, they, they proudly say we had an increase in number of calls, which gives us more confidence that we're actually looking for it, which gives us confidence that our training of our frontline staff has, has improved. And, yeah, one of the other areas we've seen is um, companies not just training, but training the right staff. So there's a, a company in sort of in the building trade that hires out sort of plant equipment and they would trained office staff on modern slavery risks, but not the staff working in the actual stores to spot people who might come on off site hiring the equipment. And, you know, having that opportunity through the modern slavery engagement to talk to them and say, actually, are you training the right staff on awareness around modern slavery? And to see them make some meaningful change as well there. So, yeah, I think, you know, that with Votes Against Slavery, that the voting is really important, but it's the engagement meetings that happen alongside where we can show that genuine spirit of partnership with the companies and they can actually learn how they can improve and really demonstrate back to the investment community that they're taking these things seriously.
0: Yeah, okay. And and so just to go back to your point then about um, the investor voice on this, for those that are not, um, I mean you mentioned um how many groups are already involved with votes against slavery, but for those that aren't um and looking to start looking at this issue, um what what's what are some good starting points?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. So I mean, I will just mention that we perhaps sort of three, four years ago, the coalition around this was a, was a little bit smaller, a little bit more limited. But we've certainly seen a, a big uptick. In interest in, um, you know, modern slavery and labour exploitation as as a a sort of champion issue on the S of ESG. So uh, the barriers sort of, I think, you know, people find the whole S issue quite amorphous. You know, it's quite tricky to sort of say which one of the issues, there's a lot of overlap between the issues, whereas you you compare and contrast it to something like climate change, which is, you know, no less an intractable, difficult issue, but it's quite manageable, it's quite definable. Whereas things like culture, things like, you know, supply chain culture, supply chain um, compliance levels, those kind of things are much more amorphous and much more diffuse. So that's one of the barriers, actually, Mm. is trying to sort of, once you realise that you should care about this stuff, how then do you proceed to move forward in a definable way? It's actually very tricky on the S side of ESG, Um, which is why I think, you know, having this Votes Against Slavery project, which has this boundary, we're looking at reporting, we're looking at Section 54, it it actually enables that action to happen a lot quicker and faster. And what we've always found is that, you know, yeah, we have a very narrow conversation around Section 54 reporting, but that enables a much deeper and more profound engagement on all kinds of human rights issues with companies. So I think that's I think it's a little barrier in thinking that, you know, um, actually, why are we narrowly focusing on, say, modern slavery? Well, through that, you get lots of benefits in terms of your engagement programme going forward, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. But, yeah, I think as well, just this idea that, you know, actually climate change has probably taken a lot of people's bandwidth. But I think there's certainly been an awareness that, you know, we can't do either or, that we have to be both and when it comes to the E and the S around ES&G. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I think you've seen as well that, you know, a deepening understanding of the issues and support networks from the NGO community on this whole issue are certainly helping investors take action in these areas as well.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, so some starting points might be then sort of, well, votes against slavery is quite a good starting point and then engaging with, with NGOs or getting the advice of NGOs. On the issues.
1: There's also a headline new human rights um, engagement project being launched by the PRI in the next, that's open for membership in the next couple of weeks, months, which, um, if you're an investor member listening to this, you might do well, very well to, to listen out for as well. Um, and there's things like the World Benchmarking Alliance and various other kind of groups there, which provide kind of investor forums for talking about the S in ESG. Uh, you know, it's one of these things where it, it doesn't quite get the attention, perhaps, that some other areas deserve I mean historically we used to get arguments back like you know when we were looking at things around the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh at the early part of the last decade Um, and there was this whole area around um, you know who are we to sort of you know judge economic activity in these companies in these countries and sort of insist on higher standards and you know, largely those those arguments sort of fall away when you, when you frame the debate around um, human rights in a modern slavery context, because it is illegal and it's clearly kind of exploitation. So, yeah, I think that, you know, take some of that interest, that engagement, but be prepared for a little bit more kind of um, <laughs> lack of clarity. But there's still lots you can do that have a really, really positive impact, even though it's not quite as definable, perhaps, as some of the environmental challenges.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, just finally then, what what's next for your um, engagement on this issue? Um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, really this is kind of votes on disclosure. And although there, I'm sure there are lots of reasons why those companies that are doing the reporting and disclosure and so forth better are, are actually going to be hopefully, you know, mitigating some of the um, modern slavery issues but that's yeah. not like you say ending modern slavery in the company so what's what's next for you?
1: Yeah there's a there's a couple of things so I mean I, I always characterize this as you know um, with, with there's two modern slavery projects that are being run by the investor community there's Folks Against Slavery and there's Find It, Fix It, Prevent It so we lead on Folks Against Slavery and CCLA our partners they lead on the Find It, Fix It, Prevent It but we're we're really careful to coordinate and we actually sit on the steering group of Find It, Fix It and I always sort of say this, it's, if any of you listeners have done a kind of a 5K or a 10K or even a park run, it's a, you know, when you show up at the park run, you have kind of somebody who's telling you where your registration is supposed to be, that you're supposed to be at the start line at this time, uh, and here's your race number, et cetera. Well, that's what kind of Votes Against Slavery is. Every business should be inscripted in this fight against modern slavery, but some of them don't even know that they should be there. So it's like saying, no, you should report. This is your responsibility. You should be part of this race. And then find it, fix it, prevent it is like um, the marshals running around the actual course, <laughs> you know, making sure that you're staying on track, making sure that you're keeping your pace up, making sure that you're hydrated, all these kind of things. So these two projects sit really nicely in parallel and sort of um, we're trying to get people to the start line. The find it, fix it, prevent it is trying to make sure that people are running the race as fast and as well as they can. Um, I think as well for us, we're looking at, um, various ways in which investor reporting in this whole issue it could accelerate things. There's talk amongst the, from the Modern Slavery Unit and the Home Office about potentially mandating some level of kind of portfolio level reporting um, on modern slavery risk. You know, we're sort of cautiously supportive on that one. Any improved reporting obviously provides that additional level of accountability. But the question is, if companies aren't reporting, then our reporting is limited, and we wouldn't wouldn't want to see a situation where all the focus comes down on the investor community who've stepped up massively through votes against slavery, when we still don't have um, the UK government and the regulatory regime, you know, firing on all cylinders in terms of um, the enforcement regime that's within the act. So again, I think I've said before, it's not an either or or both hand We want to we certainly want to see investors step up in terms of their reporting, but we definitely need a, a sort of at the same time. You know, regulators to really step up and make sure that they're you know providing that enforcement regime, because the soft, influential stuff that we do can only take us so far. And actually, just to sort of leave you with this number, you know, we're focusing on FTSE 350 companies who vote against slavery. Well, something like 13 to 15,000 companies have to report a modern slavery statement. So we're limited in terms of our effectiveness in, when we're just focusing on FTSE 350. Actually, it's about the whole UK economic life upping its game, including the supply chain due diligence on human rights.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much. That's a really interesting discussion. and Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Great. So, as I said before, lots of easy ways to start thinking about addressing modern slavery there, it seems, despite the diffuse nature of the S in ESG that Matt talks about. So thanks very much for that. Now coming up, we have the second clip from Dr. Emma Boland, and we hope you enjoy. Uh, the work you're doing currently then, um, you're using or you're, you're looking at uh, a different kind of modelling. Is that right? I mean, what, can you explain
2: what adjoint modelling is? Sure. So adjoint modelling is a, a technique we use to really get the most out of a climate model, and it works a bit differently to how a traditional climate modelling experiment might work. So before I explain exactly what an adjoint model is, I might give you a little bit of background on a kind of normal climate model. So a climate model is a computer representation of the reality. And and in my case, I often look at uh, a model that's just got the ocean in it. Although the ones that we use to make predictions about um, where the climate might go in the future often have the atmosphere, the ocean, all sorts of, all parts of the climate system in them. Um, so the climate model is made up of equations that represent the physics, so how we understand the physics of the ocean and the atmosphere, and we make it go, or we force it by using data based on observations. So for the ocean, the most important things are at the surface of the ocean, the amount of wind and the amount of radiation that's coming in from the sun. So once you've got your model of the ocean and you've um, produced an ocean that you think looks quite like reality, you might do some experiments on that and say, well, what happens if I change the winds here or uh, decrease the solar radiation over here? How does my model change? What happens to the ocean? Um, Or you might say, well, we're not really sure what the winds are in this part of the world because we don't really measure them very well. So let's try a few different things and see um, what what the difference might be. So the traditional way you might run a climate model experiment would be to change a few things in your inputs the, the those observation files run your model and see how the things that you're interested in in the ocean are changing so instead an adjoint model you take that you take that process and sort of run it backwards you start with what you're interested in you, so for example I'm interested in the amount of heat going into the southern ocean so I might say okay I'm interested in the heat in this um, this pool of water in the in the Pacific part of the Southern Ocean, for example. And then I tell my adjoint model that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the heat of this little pool of water. And then you run your model backwards and the model then tells you what that pool of water, that heat in that pool of water is sensitive to. So you might say actually the place that is most sensitive to winds is, or, is might be quite far away. Uh, and it might not be where you expected. It. it might not be where you'd have guessed if you tried to do it the traditional way. And similarly, it might tell you where it's really important, uh, where it's really sensitive to the the radiation coming in. So it's right. a really powerful technique that's becoming more widespread in climate science. And it's really going to help us answer some of the big questions about the Southern Ocean, I think. Okay.
0: Does it also mean if you're working backwards that you can then um, say something like, okay, you know, if there's if we know there's this amount of heat in this bit of water, we know we we need to not have this happen you know to cause these wind speeds or whatever therefore you know in the in the way that people are saying you know we can't get to this temperature of heating therefore we can't be doing x
2: y z to get there exactly so you can okay. do budgets what we'd call mm-hmm. we can say how much of the heat is being Um, affected by the winds and how much is being affected by what's coming in from the sun and actually those things can be linked as well so as the planet warms the winds change as well so it's all kind of linked together right okay okay got it
0: find us on soundcloud or itunes by searching for esg out loud